It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Tuesday, June 30th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. A massive star has vanished, or turned into a black hole, we're not really sure. The story behind the new 3D-printed plant-based meats, tips on how to finish your side project, and why Dairy Queen isn't allowed to say they sell ice cream, and what Margaret Thatcher has to do with that. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. A huge, super bright star from the nearby Kinmen Dwarf Galaxy has gone missing, and astronomists aren't exactly sure why. The bright blue star was first noted in observations between 2001 and 2011, but when scientists went to check on it last year, they couldn't find it. Quoting Gizmodo, The authors of the study, led by Ph.D. student Andrew Allen of Trinity College Dublin, have conjured two possible explanations. Either the star has experienced a dramatic drop in luminosity and is now partially hiding behind some dust, or it transformed into a black hole without sparking a supernova explosion. If it's the latter, it would represent just the second known failed supernova. End quote. Because the Kinmen Dwarf Galaxy is 75 million light-years away, individual stars in the galaxy can't actually be discerned. So the star in question was actually just hypothesized and classified as a luminous blue variable, or LBV. Quoting again, LBVs are massive and unpredictable stars at the end of their lives. The variable nature of this star, through its dramatic shifts in spectra and brightness, can be spotted from Earth. Incredibly, this suspected star is 2.5 times brighter than our sun. Or at least it was. Observations gathered from 2001 to 2011 pointed to a late-stage LBV in the Kinmen Dwarf Galaxy. In 2019, a team of astronomers wanted to take another look to see how it was doing, and they did so using the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope. To their surprise, there was nothing to see a result that was both exciting and discouraging at the same time, end quote. They tried again on a clearer night using a different telescope, the X-Shooter instead of the Espresso, and verified all of their notes. Still, there was no trace of the original LBV. So they turned to archival observations on the Kinmen Dwarf Galaxy to see if any other objects displayed similar behavior or characteristics. Quote, As it turns out, the suspected massive star experienced a strong outburst period that came to an end around 2011. LBVs are known to throw the odd temper tantrum, resulting in a sudden loss of mass and a sharp increase in brightness. In the wake of this particular outburst period, it's possible that, quote, we are seeing the end of an LBV eruption of a surviving star with a mild drop in luminosity, a shift to hotter effective temperatures, and some dust obscuration, wrote the authors in the study. So the star might still be active, it's just now too dim for us to detect from Earth, end quote. Or another possibility is that the star collapsed into a black hole, but without a supernova explosion. 
something that is incredibly rare. So rare that it's only been documented once before, but with a much smaller star. Imre Bartos, a physicist at the University of Florida who wasn't involved with the study, told Gizmodo, quote, The current consensus is that stars cannot end their lives as black holes heavier than about 65 times the mass of the sun. If the disappearance of the star is indeed due to its collapse to a heavier black hole, we will have to rethink our understanding of how stars live and die, end quote. And we should find out more, both in general and about this particular LBV, in just a few years because ESO's extremely large telescope is on track to be ready for use in 2025. This is a step up from the very large telescope that the team used to check on the LBV last year. And side note, why do all these telescopes sound like they were named by Lemony Snicket? In any case, so long as this team gets approval to use the extremely large telescope, we will hopefully solve the mystery of this disappearing star in just a few years. Plant-based has kind of become the new buzzword to replace predecessors locale and organic. That doesn't mean that it's not legit, just that the trendiness of the term might be usurping some of the good intentions and usefulness of the products. But I digress. The latest development in the land of plant-based imitation meats is 3D printing. Redefine Meat is a startup that's looking to go one step further than the popular burger patties of companies like Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat by replicating entire cuts of meat. Quoting Fast Company, The startup, launched by co-founders who met while developing digital printers at HP, created custom 3D printers that aim to replicate meat by printing layers of what they call alt-muscle, alt-fat, and alt-blood, forming a complex 3D model. Real meat is an extremely complicated product, where much of the sensory experience comes from the matrix, says co-founder and CEO Eshar Ben-Shitrit. Meat is not just proteins, fats, and water. Beef, especially, is a product that has been built for years by the cow. Other startups are also working on the challenge of making realistic cuts of meat, some through the use of mycelium, the root-like fibers in mushrooms. The company will also be selling the printers to restaurants, which can tailor the digital recipe so changes in the product come at zero cost or complexity, he says. We can use a 3D model of an entirely different meat product with the same machine, process, and ingredients, whereas traditional food production technologies have to change entire formulations. We can also iterate a steak to be softer, harder, juicier, with less fat, and much more, all with a simple click of a button. While the costs may come down as the company grows, they say that their alt steak is already competitive with high-end steaks. Ultimately, it should be more affordable, converting plants into food more efficiently than a cow, end quote. The team notes that while they're doing their best to replicate the taste, texture, and mouthfeel by working with experts ranging from butchers to food technologists, steak is one of the more challenging meats to replicate. Ben Shitrit calls steak the most meaningful symbol of what meat is, and also that it's not usually covered up with a bun or toppings, so they need their plant-based replica to really be able to stand on its own. As they work out the kinks to make their product something good enough to catch on, there's no denying its advantages both environmentally and nutritionally. Their plant-based steaks use 90% less water, 95% less land, and emit 90% less carbon dioxide than cow meat. It also has less fat and no cholesterol, but equivalent amounts of protein and with the bonus of extra fiber. Ben Shitrit says, quote, We believe in the next 20 years we'll see a massive shift towards replacing animals in the food supply chain. It'll happen with eggs, dairy, and meat, but the biggest problem is no doubt meat. 
100 years from now, our great-grandkids will find it shocking that we needed to raise and kill animals for food. End quote. I might be projecting a little with this next segment, but if you've been having trouble finishing a side project you've been working on, Hugo Zapata recently outlined some insightful advice on his blog. He starts by describing the common emotional timeline of working on a side project. Initial excitement and hyper-focus followed by lack of motivation as time crawls on. And some of the typical challenges of a side project, including distractions, perfectionism, imposter syndrome, lack of time, and the high cognitive load of context switching. The first step to tackling some of these common blockers is reflecting on what your goal for the project is. Why are you really doing it? Zapata notes that sometimes he has realized he actually just wanted to experiment with a new tool or feature, not actually complete a big project. You may also have set yourself too big of a goal. Maybe you need to scale back so you don't get overwhelmed and burn out on the project. Once you've determined your goal, Zapata has a recommended plan of action. First, break things into small steps. This can help you focus on one task at a time and also give you a sense of satisfaction, like you've really completed something and are progressing along instead of getting bogged down in the big picture and losing perspective on how far you've already come. Next, a ritual Zapata has started doing is before he gets started on the actual work, he writes down what he hopes to achieve during the upcoming work session. He says it helps figure out the next first step and also shift his thinking from whatever he was doing before into this particular project. Plus, you can look back on these logs your next session to help inform your plan over and over again. And I will add as a writer that I do something similar to this, especially on days when I'm not super motivated but I know that I need to work on a particular project anyways. What I do is start with a free write, where I spend a few minutes just typing a stream of consciousness, anything that comes into my head. For anyone familiar with The Artist's Way, it's a similar practice to morning pages. Sometimes it helps me to simply clear my mind, but often I end up transitioning into the project I'm supposed to be working on anyways. But back to Zapata's tips. He's really into this idea of context switching, of really separating your side project from your normal work. And he has concrete suggestions for helping make the switch. He creates a separate system user on his computer for his side project, as well as a separate email address and a context file for those progress logs. Now, this might not be applicable to all types of side projects, but he highly recommends them as ways of reducing distractions and creating a sort of cognitive barrier. Quoting his blog, By creating a separate user, you automatically have all the operative system tools, calendar, notes, reminders, etc., available only for your project. All the files on your desktop will have a relation to your project. This may not seem impressive, but think about all the small distractions you find if you use the same user for your personal slash work tasks. Time to find a file and filtering through unrelated stuff will bring memories of other things. Reminders and calendar notifications not related to your project, dealing with other project setups can be stressful. End quote. And his next tip is to consider your location. While we may not have too many options for a change of scenery right now, he recommends having a different space for your main and side projects. Maybe you've set up a home office in your living room but can work on your side project from your bedroom. In the future, maybe your side project can mostly happen at the library or a cafe. And his final piece of advice is that just because you abandoned something doesn't mean it was a failure. You still learned something. Part of what you accomplished could be incorporated into a future project. As he says, quote, it's good to have an open mind and be okay with finding dead ends. They're powerful teachers. End quote.
The summer heat is officially here, and one of the most beloved ways to keep cool is with a nice ice cream. But did you know that American treasure Dairy Queen, known best for their candy-filled blizzards, isn't actually legally allowed to say that they serve ice cream? You might know that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has strict guidelines on what it considers various types of food. That's why some cheeses, like Kraft Singles, have to say on their label that they're technically cheese product. And similarly, Dairy Queen and a number of others specify that they sell soft serve, not ice cream. Quoting Dairy Queen's website, To be categorized as ice cream, the minimum butterfat content must be 10%, and our soft serve has only 5% butterfat content. While our soft serve product used to be categorized as ice milk, the Food and Drug Administration eliminated this category of product to allow companies the ability to market frozen dairy products as reduced fat, light, and low-fat ice cream. DQ Soft Serve fits into the reduced fat ice cream category, and our shake mix qualifies as low fat ice cream. But even though our soft serve may have been categorized differently in the past, our recipe has not changed. DQ Soft Serve contains 5% butter fat, which is not the same as 95% fat free. End quote. And additionally, as a lactose intolerant person who desperately wants to eat a blizzard, I can assure you that this does not mean their soft serve treats are dairy free. They still have milk, fats, and protein, just not enough to qualify as legal ice cream in the United States. And just to get a quick lactose intolerant soapbox moment, frozen yogurt, gelato, custard, and sherbet all have dairy in them too. The only dairy-free, scoopable frozen treat is sorbet. I mean, you can make dairy-free versions of all of those, but they aren't in themselves naturally dairy-free. And one more weird thing about soft serve. Former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher is often erroneously credited with inventing it. And while she definitely didn't, there's more weight to the rumor than you might think. Quoting The New Yorker. Shortly after graduating from Oxford in 1947 with a degree in chemistry, Margaret Roberts, the future Mrs. Thatcher, worked briefly at the food conglomerate J. Lyons & Company where she helped devise a method for whipping extra air into ice cream that laid the foundation for modern soft serve. The innovation spread thanks to Mr. Whippy, a chain of British ice cream trucks that paved the way for today's hawkers of towering cones pierced with Cadbury flake bars and became popular worldwide. End quote. While she may have been part of the team that helped popularize soft serve in the United Kingdom, the innovation truly began about a decade prior in the United States. Quoting again, In 2008, Marion Burroughs offered a version of the conventional narrative in The Times. Either J.F. McCullough or Tom Carvel deserves credit as the first soft-serve maker. Mr. McCullough made soft-serve in 1938 in Moline, Illinois. One August day, he offered it at a friend's ice cream shop in Kankakee, Illinois, and 1,600 people paid 10 cents for all they could eat of his newfangled treat. Mr. Carvel appears to have stumbled on soft serve about the same time. When his truck carrying ice cream broke down in Hartsdale, New York, he sold it from the truck over two days as it softened. End quote. J.F. McCullough went on to found Dairy Queen, while Tom Carvel founded, well, Carvel. Both still claim to have invented soft serve, and, you know, considering no one would have been immediately Instagramming the newfangled soft serve they tried in 1938, it's not unlikely that they genuinely had the same idea around the same time without knowing it. That said, like soft serve itself, historians actually believe that the rumor of Margaret Thatcher's involvement bears little weight. 
Steve Tillier, the leading amateur expert in British soft serve, thinks it more likely that Jay Lyons and Company, where Thatcher was working, was trying to recreate the soft serve already being sold by Mr. Softy in America. And the reason the rumor took off like it did? Possibly because Thatcher supporters thought it a nice patriotic story, but more likely because her detractors liked the metaphor that Thatcher invented a soft ice cream that, quote, added air, lowered quality, and raised profits. So, there you have it. Even something as seemingly simple as soft-serve ice cream is strung up in bureaucracy and political intrigue. Happy summer! So, last night I watched the new Will Ferrell movie Eurovision on Netflix, and I genuinely loved it. I used to love Will Ferrell back in the day, haven't really enjoyed a lot of his more recent movies, so it was a nice return, and uh, a lot of Eurovision contestants and winners from over the years had cameos, but not my personal favorite Eurovision winners of all time, Lordi from Finland, who won in 2006. Their winning performance, Hard Rock Hallelujah, is a sight to be seen. I'm going to leave a link in the description box in case any of you want to watch it. But otherwise, that is it for today. As always, this show is produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird. I hope you have a good day, and I will talk to you tomorrow.